because I'm going to only read one scripture, then I'll not have you to stand. I normally have people to stand when we read the Word of God. But turn to the Song of Solomon, if you would. <coughs> the Song of Solomon, the second chapter, verse 15. And I told you that I had planned on speaking tonight on the baptism of Christ. And that's exactly what <coughs> I would title this message. We're going to kind of slip around the back door and come in tonight. So the scripture that I read is probably one that you would not recognize as far as my title is concerned. The Song of Solomon, the second chapter, verse 15. Take us the foxes, the little foxes, that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Praise God. One verse and one verse only, but we will repeat that. Take us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Now the reason why that <clears throat> I read this scripture out of the Song of Solomon is because the Song of Solomon is dealing with the relationship of a bride and a bridegroom. One who is a spouse too. It's really a, a love story. That's exactly what it is. It's a love story. For the blacks here talk about being the sons of God. I think as you look through the scripture you will find that there are several things the church is compared to. The church is compared to the body of Christ. It's compared to the children of Christ. We are called friends by our Lord. We are the espoused bride of Christ, according to the Apostle Paul in his writings in 2 Corinthians. And then, of course, in his writings to those at Ephesus, he compares us to a husband and wife relationship with the Lord. And there is an intimacy between God's children and the Lord that cannot be explained in any other fashion other than the fashion of a bride and a groom. Now, as you look at the Song of Solomon, and as you begin to read, you will find that this love affair is just so very wonderfully expressed by the young lady and also by the young man who is involved. Now, <coughs> if you look at this, uh, verse 5 of chapter 2, it says, Stay with me, flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. Now, sick of love simply means I am love sick. Now, the reason why that I believe that I can talk to you like this because I think everybody here has experienced love to some degree. How many of you know what it's like to be lovesick? Now, don't hide your hand. Come on. All right? You know what it's like, and, and you know that the old saying is that love is blind. Peter explained it like this in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. He said, Charity covereth a multitude of sins. In other words, charity or love covers a multitude of sins. The context for which he was writing is explained like this, that if you like somebody, you usually overlook their faults. And isn't it true that if you dislike somebody, you pretty well dislike everything they do? And you think that, that they are just totally off there, so to speak. You think that they have some real problems. Now, <clears throat> quite often in dealing with people, and Brother Blackshear said I had dealt with people under every circumstance and situation, and of course this is true of all pastors. You, 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 you get to know people real well. You, you know each individual of your congregation. Now, I can assure you, and I talked last evening about attitudes, I can assure you that every time something's mentioned, 
in our church, who will be excited about it and who won't? And many times it's determined by who introduces the idea. <laughs> Isn't that true? <laughs> you know, we, we might as well to confess that there are certain personalities that we agree with more so than others. And when you are lovesick, you can overlook the deficiencies of the object of your love. And one of the hardest things in, in all of life for a pastor to do is to hold counseling sessions with people who are about to get married and try to convince them that they're not compatible. Now that is a difficult thing to do. And the reason why is because when they are so madly in love, <clears throat> they don't think about anything but the object of their affection. Now, as you look in the Song of Solomon, that's exactly what happens. The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a row of the young heart, or the deer that has a young heart. And, and it's explained in, in such a romantic fashion throughout the book of Solomon. You can see this young lady as she prepares herself for, we'll use the word date for the evening, for lack of a better word. I don't know, for some reason, I never did care for the word date. I, I just don't really know what all that, uh, the connotation of it really, <laughs> or how it applies among Pentecostals. But uh, usually our young people take each other to the church and uh, they greet each other with praise the Lord, you know, and isn't that right? And, uh, <clears throat> you know... <laughs> <clears throat> but uh, not a whole lot of that mushy stuff, you know. <clears throat> Isn't that right, young people? <laughs> Praise the Lord. <clears throat> but she's preparing for that date. Now, I grew up in a home with four sisters, and I know exactly how ladies respond to a date. My older sister whom I was very close to, she was dating uh, a young man, which is now her present husband and also the principal of our Christian school in Madison. But honestly, she'd start getting ready about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and her date would be like 6, 6.30, and she had all of this spare time, but she would, she would stand before the mirror and she'd get everything just just perfect and uh, she'd curl her eye lashes you know that so that all point out straight and up you know and I suppose there's nothing that looks worse than an eyelash that's crossed <laughs> you know <laughs> you know you want to <laughs> you know you want to have class you want to do it right But she had all of these things that she she liked to do, and she'd primp and primp and primp, and finally she'd get ready, and she'd go to the door, and she'd look and look. Now, she was uh, engaged to be married, and she just couldn't wait till Jimmy arrived. Now, the strange thing about it, I never could figure this out about women. As soon as he topped the hill, she'd run back in the bedroom, she'd tell, she'd tell me to tell him, tell him I'll be out in a minute. Now, I couldn't think of that. <laughs> but that's so he'd come in and sit down and wait a few minutes, and she'd walk out as if maybe she had a rush day, and uh, she wasn't quite prepared. And <laughs> the truth of the matter is, she had done nothing all afternoon but get ready. Now, this is exactly what you see in the Song of Solomon. You find these. Two people that are madly in love. Madly in love. Now, the scripture that I called your attention to in the 15th verse 
of Solomon 2 is a scripture that does not seem to fit in the context of the writing because it has nothing to do with a love affair. And I wondered why in the world that a scripture like this could be placed in such a conspicuous place. It appears that, that what has happened here is that while Sis was getting ready and while she was preparing and she was so caught up in her love affair that somebody slipped into the room and reminded her that she had a basic responsibility, her job, perhaps this was the day that she was to be the keeper of the vineyard. And so somebody reminds her that the little foxes will come into the harvest and they will spoil the vines and they will spoil the grapes. Our vines have tender grapes. So take us the foxes, the little foxes. In other words, take care of the foxes. Don't let them come in. And I found this out to be true. It appears to me that the most intimacy, or the more uh, intimacy, rather, that you're involved in as far as relationship is concerned, the greater the responsibility becomes. Now you will find that to be true. There is no intimacy greater on this earth than the intimacy of marriage, the relationship between husband and wife. But at the same time, there is no intimacy that requires more responsibility than the union of that relationship. Now, this is also true in our relationship with the Lord. Now, I want to talk to all of us who are here not excluding anyone. I had a lady not too long ago to come up to me and said, Brother Grant, you were preaching directly to me. You, you were naming me today, and you intentionally did that. Is that true? I said, no, I did not intentionally single you out. But please remember this, I did not exclude you either. For the preaching of the Word of God is for everybody. So it's as much for you as it was for anybody around you. And you should consider all of it to be your portion. But you see, what we're seeing in our present day world, we're seeing people who want what I call a love affair with God without responsibility. And it causes their intimacy to become very, very cheap. And there is no such thing as a cheap relationship with God. While some people like to shout the floors and talk in tongues in a lot of circles of our world, and by the same token do everything else that they want to do and bear no responsibility... It is a disgrace to Bible teaching and to a Savior who gave His life on the cross. The Apostle Paul said, God forbid that I should preach the gospel of the cross without offense. Now without offense is what he was saying is this. When I preach the gospel of the cross, it diametrically opposes human will and human desire. Quite often my children come in and ask me, Dad, can I go do this? And I say, Son, no, you can't do this. And then they say, Dad, can I do this? No, you can't do this. Can I do that? No, you can't do that. What can I do? And I try to explain to them, Son, because I have no girls, but I explain to them, Son, we're trying to make it to heaven. And Jesus Christ died for our sins. And, of course, I believe that I owe them an explanation as to why they can't do certain things. But this is what I found out about the cross. The cross is a symbol of death. And it's a symbol of self-denial. And, oh, how my heart at times have longed 
to do certain things and go certain places. And there was something inside of me when I got down to pray that reminded me of the cross. And when I looked back in the Bible to Golgotha's brow, and I saw the stretched out arms of a lonely Savior on a hillside, something told me, no, you can't do it. You can't shirk your responsibility. The cross cuts against Brother Grant's will. It cuts against Brother Grant's desires. There's something about the cross that continues to cry out, No! 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 You cannot have your way. You cannot do your own thing. So God forbid that any of us would ever preach the gospel of Christ and preach the cross without offense because it diametrically opposes the will of man. It is a symbol of repentance. It's a symbol of death. It's a symbol of forgiveness. Praise God. Praise God. Let's lift our hands and praise the Lord. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Oh, praise God. I remember <clears throat> I remember when Sister Grant and I first began to see each other. She came home with one of my sisters from school for a few moments, and my sister was to take her home, and <clears throat> for some reason my sister was a little bit afraid to drive her home. I think I was framed into this, but so they came and asked me if I would uh, drive Darlene home. And at that time, uh, I wasn't that interested. But she came up to me and said, uh, Your sister tells me that you'll drive me home. And I've got to be home by a certain time because my mother's in the hospital sick. So I've got to cook supper. So I said, Well, let's go. I jumped in the car. She only lived about four miles away. And, you know, uh, <clears throat> there's just something about it. You can tell when people like you. And, and, of course, young people are very sensitive, you know, to this because they kind of, everybody they're around, they kind of measure, you know, to see if there's some vibrations, you know. They just kind of turn all their instruments on, you know, to see if there's something kind of floating out there. That So that my radar was on. And, yes, and, <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> and I picked up some vibrations, you know. And, and so, well... <laughs> Well, I was taking her home. I decided that uh, wasn't bad company. She wasn't bad company. So I asked her if I could take her out the uh, following week sometime. So uh, she said, well, I'll think about it for a minute. And uh, it kind of floored me because I thought she was eager. And she said, uh, <clears throat> then when I asked her again, she said, oh, yes, I'd be delighted. And uh, that's the way girls are, you know. They, I got to say no first time. So she told me no, and of course I understood that too. I figured she would say no, even though I, you know, you're always shocked. But uh, we we started seeing each other after we had been seeing each other for about two years. I sought the counsel of my dad and my mom, and I decided that I want to marry her. Well. I went and bought a ring. Now, nowadays, it's customary for both the boys and the girls to go together, I understand. But uh, way back in the eons of the past, uh, it wasn't that way. I went and picked out the ring I wanted for her. And uh, I put it in the glove compartment of my, my car. So after I'd gone over to her house and eaten supper one evening, I decided that I, I just had to ask her to, to marry me. So I, I didn't know, really know. I was just nervous and fidgety, and I didn't know how to, to, to do this, you know, because, you know, you just don't in, uh, propose every day. So I was a novice at this. <clears throat> now, what I did, I asked her, I said, I'd like to just talk for a while. Let's just get in the car and drive. Now, before I left that evening, I was not a praying boy. I was not in church. But that night I prayed. I prayed, God, now I want you to help her to say yes. 
Because if she turns me down, I'm going to go down to the local hardware store and buy a rope and hang myself. You know, that's the way you feel. It's just, it's Darlene or else, you know. I've got to marry her. I just, so I uh, drove around for a while and and then I uh, drove around some more. <laughs> I was nervous. She said, what's wrong tonight? You're not saying much. I said, oh, it's all right. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> after a while, she said, John, what's wrong? And I said, uh, nothing's wrong. Finally, I found a place in which I could stop the car. And so I asked her, I said, Darlene, I've uh, been doing a lot of thinking, you know, for a long time. We've been going together for about two years or two and a half years. I said, uh, I would like for you to become my wife. Wow, she turned as white as a ghost. <laughs> she said, uh, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> comes as a surprise. You know, we've been talking about marriage for a long time, but <clears throat> I guess that's the way women are, you know. So... <clears throat> I got the ring and I showed it to her and she thought it was lovely. But evidently the ring must have impressed her more than I did. I don't know. It's just a lovely ring, but I don't know if I'm ready for marriage. I said, "Hun, we can get ready together. You know how that goes. We can, we can grow together. We can learn together. But we're just kids. And I said, uh, now don't be calling me a kid. <laughs> no, I didn't mean that, see. You know, she... But anyway, <clears throat> she accepted my proposal. I remember going home that night and I saw her picture. I had a picture up on my dresser. And mine was on one side and hers on the other. And you know when you're in love, you do some real silly things, don't you? <laughs> so I kind of close them together, you know. <laughs> you know, it just looks so great. <clears throat> uh, Give some of you young people a hand here, you know. <clears throat> then I gave her a big kiss, and I went and jumped in bed. I couldn't sleep that night. All I could think about was getting married, getting married, getting married. Of course, my mom is real inquisitive, and she came and asked me. And I told her, I said, well, she's going to marry me. And, oh, you know, we talked for a while, and I got back in bed. I still couldn't sleep. We started preparing for our marriage, and I remember... The preacher that married us, how sober he was. You know, when these preachers are going to marry young people, they act as if the world has come to an end. <laughs> and he wanted to do some counseling with us. And so when we went in there, his eyebrows were down. You know, if you see people whose eyebrows are down, there's trouble, you know. That's the reason when you worship, you should raise your eyebrows. <laughs> Isn't that right? Amen. Put your eyebrows way down and try to smile. It doesn't work, does it? <clears throat> you ever tried that? So when the eyebrows are lowered, you know that things are not going to go too good. And listen, that preacher talked to me as if I was still in kindergarten. Like I didn't know anything. But I'll tell you the truth. Everything he said, I discarded. I just totally forgot it. I wanted to get married, and I thought he was trying to talk me out of it. And he thought I was a juvenile. And he thought that I didn't have enough sense to know how to get out and work. I had a pretty good job. But uh, he was laying down the law to me. Now, my dad had already done that. And my mother had done that several times. But I discarded it all. Then I remember standing before that preacher, and naturally he goes into... The vows, and there's a part of the vow that goes like this, for better or for worse. And I didn't really know what that meant until later. I remember that after we were married, the very first fuss that we had. You see, I was down one day at my mother's place ironing my jeans when Darlene came down. My mother said, oh, he's back in the bedroom ironing the jeans. And she came in there and she says, 
You have to iron your own jeans? I said, what's wrong with that? She came up to me with those big blue eyes, and she looked up and she said, you know, when we get married, you never will have to iron jeans anymore. Well, I didn't forget that. <laughs> so after we were married and I got ready to go to work, I didn't have jeans one day. So <clears throat> she said, well, I haven't been feeling well. And so <clears throat> at any rate, uh, she cooked a little breakfast, and I sat down. I still didn't have jeans. I said, no, it looks like I'm going to have to iron my own jeans, huh? She said, well, I didn't have time. And I said, now you told me before we got married that I wouldn't have to iron jeans anymore. Uh And so things uh, got worse there at the table. And after a while, I looked at her and I said, honestly, I said, I thought I knew you when I married you. But you're not the person that I thought you were. And she lashed back out and she said, And I'll have you to know, John Grant, you're not the man that I thought you were. Well, I'll tell you, we had ourselves a good clawing time for a while there. Our first fight. And I went off to work after ironing my own jeans. And... and <laughs> And after I got to work, uh, boss man, uh, he was an old tough guy, you know, construction man. And I guess he saw that I was a little blue. He came around. He said, you're not feeling well today? No, I'm doing all right. What's wrong? I said, well, the wife and I got into a fuss. He said, what about it? I said, I don't want to discuss it. (laughs) He said, "Uh aha. Wasn't what you thought it was going to be, huh? (laughs) And I said, "Uh, what do you mean? He says, well, we all... Come to our senses after a while. He said, uh, at your convenience, you and I should sit down and just have a good talk. He said, I've been married for a good, long, long time. And so we did. We sat down one day just chatting. We had a good, long talk. He said, it's impossible, John. Now, he was not a Christian. To know what a woman is until you've lived with her. Now, he said, the the thing about it is, he said, there is no such thing as falling in love. And you thought you were so much in love. But he said, the truth of the matter is, you were only in love with your own ideas. You were in love with your own model of what you thought she was. And isn't it true that you can see a person at a distance... And you say, hey, that's an ugly-looking guy. He must really be tough and rough. And when you get around him, he's got a real meek and understanding spirit and personality. And then sometimes you can see a real sharp-looking guy who looks so congenial. And when you're around him for a while, he grates on your nerves so much you want to go jump in the lake. You know? Then you can see a lady who is well-dressed and such, and you think, man, she's such a nice, congenial lady. And you find out she could almost bite your head off if you crossed her path. You know? And, and so you come to this conclusion after you've been living as long as I have lived that, that you just don't prejudge people. That it's, it's not right to do that. Doesn't mean that you hold them at arm's length. It's not that at all. But you just trust everybody until you have a reason to, to believe otherwise. And you love people. And when you genuinely fall in love with people, so to speak, you find out later that you, you weren't really in love with the individual, but you were in love with what you thought he was. But true love is predicated upon more than just falling head over heels in some type of an experience. But it's standing alongside with somebody It's bearing their burdens with them and crying their tears with them. and You know, here in the States, we might be making a real mistake. I'm not really for sure. But we let our young people go out and marry just at random. Of course, those of the Christian faith, we tell them that they ought to marry a Christian for they should not be unequally yoked together. 
But the truth of the matter is, young people who do not really know the individual, and there's no way that you can know the individual the way you should, they need a lot of guidance and instruction from parents. When I worked at Laterno, R.G. Laterno in Longview, Texas, there was an Indian man that came from India, and he received a letter that his father and mother had found a bride for him. And I thought, man, this is something else. And I asked him, I said, uh, who is she? He turned the picture over and read the name on the back. And I said, you mean you don't even know this girl? He said, no. I said, you never get me to marry anybody that I don't know. He said, well, he said, I will give you some statistics if it makes you feel good. He said, here in the States, you have the highest divorce rate of any place in the world. And the lowest divorce rate of any place in the world is my country, India. It's unheard of. And I said, well, how in the world can you marry somebody that you don't love? He said, my father goes out because nobody knows me like my father and mother. And they interview parents until they find a young lady who they feel is compatible to me, to meet all my needs. And he said, in India... We do not marry because of what we see externally. But we marry because that our father and our mother has chosen a bride for us who has the internal values that will meet our needs. And so as a result, divorce in India is unheard of and it's running rampant here in the States. Now I can truthfully say this. After living with my wife now almost 23 years, I can truthfully say that if I had never married her and if I had known all the weaknesses that I feel that she had when we first got married, I would marry her all over again because I love her more than any person in this world. As much as I like to be here in Alaska and as much as I like the Fellowship of the Black Cheers, there is a magnet in Madison, Wisconsin, that's pulling my heart tonight. I love her, and I love my family. And quite frankly, I'd like to fly out at midnight. I'd like to be back for tomorrow afternoon service, but I'll tell you, I'd sure like to see her. I preached revivals, and I'd driven all night long just to pick her up and take her back with me. And I'd get back almost service time the next night and preach another meeting. I loved her, and I love her with all my heart. There is a passage of Scripture that I'd like to call your attention to in Matthew, the 20th chapter, verse 20. Matthew 20, verse 20. Jesus is talking to the mother of James and John. Now this mother is making a very ambitious request. She comes, and this is what she says. Then came unto him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons. Matthew 20, 20. Worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in thy kingdom. Now this is the type of relationship they want. They came, and the Bible says they were desiring a certain thing. And when, they, when she came, rather she was worshiping the Lord. And you know, all the Jews looked forward to the day in which they could sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob around the throne. There was an intimacy in their relationship, even though they did not know their predecessors that linked them to the past. They loved their heritage, and they longed to be with them, and they loved their Jehovah God. And when the disciples grew in a relationship with God, they understood that He was the mighty God that He was the everlasting Father, Amen. that He was the Prince of Peace, and they wanted to sit down with Him on the throne. Now, this is a great, great thing that all of us are expecting because I believe from the very portals of heaven that there's a real magnet that's calling us home tonight. Amen. You see, we're one with Christ. Amen. The same Spirit that raised up Christ from the dead dwells in my body. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. And someday in the clouds of glory, He's going to come back. And friend, if that spirit that's in me 
Praise God is the same spirit that's in Christ. When He comes back in the clouds, I'm going to be magnetized. Hallelujah. Gravitation's going to lose its pull. And I'm going to go up to meet the Lord in the air to be with Him forever. And so, the, the Apostle Paul says, shall we ever be with Him? Praise God. And I look forward to that. And I'll tell you, there's nothing in all the world that I like like I like worship. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God. I like to worship God. I like to sing. I like to shout. Last night and tonight, I did not sing the way I wanted to. I'm having problems with my voice. And I asked God several times, Lord, just help my voice so I can sing. Last evening while people were praying here, oh, I felt the effects of His Spirit. It was the same effect. It had the same effect upon me that my wife had upon me many years ago. I felt something tingle up and down my spine. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. I felt it all over me. I got excited in my heart. Praise God. There was something there. Oh, it was there. It was there. It was there. It caused me to leap. Praise God. It causes me to shout. Praise God. It causes me to weep. Oh, hallelujah. There is nothing in all the world that I like like I like worshiping God. Praise God. I love to worship God. I love to worship God. I love to worship God. Praise God. Praise God. And I want to say this before I proceed. Any statements that I make relative to a balanced relationship does not in any way negate the fact that we ought to love and worship God with all of our heart. But the problem with a lot of Christians is this, that they've been so caught up in the ecstasy of a loving relationship that they have forgotten that Traveling along with that relationship and that intimacy is a long, long train of responsibilities. And this is what happened. Jesus said, after she asked her request, but Jesus answered and said, verse 22, You know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now, what kind of a baptism was Jesus Christ baptized with? The Bible tells us that John the Baptist was born full of the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. If John the Baptist was born full of the Holy Ghost, dare I say less of Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ was the mighty God. Praise God. The Spirit of Jehovah was in Christ, reconciling the world unto Himself. And what Jesus was saying, that baptism that I am baptized with, it's the same baptism that you need in order for you to sit with me in my throne. Now, I know that what you'd automatically say, well, I have the Spirit. I have the Spirit. But please remember this. Just as my marital relationship was with Darlene Smith, when I married her, I married everything that she was. I married the part that I really did like and I found out after I married her, I married the part I really didn't like. And what happens sometimes in our relationship with God and the baptism of the Holy Ghost, we kind of subtract from the sum total of God what we want. That's right. And this is the reason why that some of us can get ex- exceedingly happy and excited in making love with the Lord. But remember, when we took on His baptism, we took on everything that God ever was. Praise God, praise God. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. And that's what the Lord was saying. Don't get so caught up as you come worshiping me and asking this request. You understand what it's like to worship. The Bible says that that same Jesus of whom you have crucified, God hath raised him up and he hath become both Lord and Christ. Now when it speaks of Lord and Christ, now that's speaking of a dual personality. Say, well, I thought that God was one. No, what the Scripture is saying here is that the Jehovah of the Old Testament who was Lord unto them, He became the God or the Christ of the New Testament. To Lord, we are His servants. We work for Him. There's responsibility involved in this type of relationship. But to God, we worship and we adore. And the God that the Israelites worked for and labored for and they gave their lives for is the same God that we worship and that redeemed us and saved us and will take us to heaven and we will be His bride. Hallelujah. 
So that God has become both Lord of the Old Testament and Christ of the New. So He is the God that we labor and work for, and yet He is the one that we love, and He's the one that we worship. If we can't subtract one part of God and another part of God and another part of God, it reminds me of a lady I talked with one time who actually told me, she said, I have torn certain pages out of my Bible because there's certain things I don't want to do. One lady not too long ago who visited our church in Madison, she had the audacity to tell a person in our church, said, oh, Calvary Gospel Church, I went over there one time she said, now let me see. How do I describe that church? She said, it's different. She thought for a while. She said, that's the church that makes you live right. I'm glad she got the story straight. Praise God. Now I want to show you briefly what God is. If you would turn with me first to Galatians. The fifth chapter, verse 22. Galatians 5, verse 22. Now this is the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Now the fruit of the Spirit in the Scripture is none less than the divine character of God. Now, character is what you are. And the character of God is wrapped up in this. He is love. In Him there is joy. In Him there is peace. In Him there is long-suffering. In Him there is gentleness. In Him there is goodness. In Him there is faith. In Him there is meekness. In Him there is temperance. Now, when we take on Christ's baptism, that's what we take on. Praise God. Now, some of us have subtracted some of those things. You know, we don't like to be gentle. We don't like to be temperate. We don't like to be faithful. We take a part of it, and a part of it we don't like anymore. Now, I'd like for you to back up to 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. 1 Corinthians 12. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles carried away under these dumb idols even as you were led. Now he goes on down to talk about diversities of gifts. Now if I understand the scripture correctly, when it speaks of gifts here, it's not speaking of a present. The gift of the Holy Ghost is the free present. You're given a Christmas gift. That simply means you got something that you did not earn. It was given to you without strings attached. But the word gift that's found in 1 Corinthians 12 does not come from the same word that the gift of the Holy Ghost is taken from. When it speaks of gifts here, it's speaking of special endowment or ability or talent. The brother and sister who sung up here evidently have a great talent for singing. God has given them the ability Sister Brown, who plays over here, God has given her the special anointing or the talent or the ability. And the Bible says with that spirit, there comes a special anointing. God gives us supernatural ability to do certain things. With his spirit, there is the ability to heal. With his spirit, there is the ability to perform miracles. With his spirit, there is the ability uh, to know certain things. With His Spirit, there is ability to uh, react certain ways. God gives you a word of wisdom, and so forth and so on. Now, the, the gift of the spirits, or the gifts of the spirits, the power of God in operation. When the Bible says, it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. God reaches down and grants to His people supernatural talents or abilities to do certain things in the Spirit. I talked about repentance and what repentance will do. But friend, your desire alone will never save a soul. Your love alone will never save a soul. It may take you to that soul, but you need that Spirit of God flowing out of you to reach Him, to contact Him. When Peter said, silver and gold, have I none but such as I have. He was talking about the power 
of God inside of me is able to raise you up, man. And so Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the character of God. And then he talks about the gifts of the Spirit. This is the power of God. And then there's another area of God that I'd like to briefly touch on tonight. If you'd turn with me to the book of Ephesians, the fourth chapter, Ephesians 4, the Bible says that God gave gifts unto men. In verse 8, verse 11, he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and some teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowing of the Son of God. Do you know why that God set up the man as the head of his household? Because when two people are joined together, they will have disagreements. And one has to submit to the other. Do you know why that God put pastors, evangelists, and teachers and such in the church? It's because that when we all come together, there are parts of us that we like and parts of us that we don't like. But rather than the divorce part of the body, God gives us ministers for the unity of the Spirit. Until we all come into the unity of the faith. So God's authority is expressed in His ministers. God's power is expressed in His spiritual gifts that flow from you. And God's character is exemplified in your everyday actions. And when you take on God, you take on more than just the Spirit that makes you dance. You take on more than the Spirit that makes you run the aisles. You take on more than the Spirit that makes you quake. Brother, when you take on Christ, you take on everything that God is. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Now you may say, well, Brother Grant, what are you trying to aim at tonight? You see, just as a marital relationship must be balanced with love versus responsibility. God intentionally put it in the Song of Solomon that it be that way. Why? Because only in God can man really be responsible. Do you know that the Bible tells us in John 10, 10, the thief cometh not but to kill and steal and destroy. Jesus said, but I come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Now, there never has been a nation, there never has been a society of people that have forsaken the ways of the Bible and existed. They don't do it. One nation falls and another nation arises again. When Peter said, save us from this untoward generation, that word untoward generation, something just jumped out at me one day as I began to read it. And I thought I would look it up in the Greek. And when the Bible says, save us from... That untoward generation, what the apostle Peter was saying in untoward generation, this is making reference to a man who's lame or one leg is shorter than the other. And so as a result, when he walks, he walks like this. And he has to put forth a a very special effort in order to walk straight. And so the untoward man is a man who walks around in circles. Why? Because he takes one big step with one leg and one little step with another leg. The book of Proverbs says the legs of a lame man are not equal. And that's what he was talking about. That's the way the world is. It's winding around and it's going around and it's going around and it's going around exactly like the devil wants them to go. Why? Because the devil cometh not but to kill and steal and destroy. And a man who's lost is a man who wanders around in circles without any definite direction. He doesn't know where he's going nor where he came from. And that's the cry of our world today. And what we need in our generation is a real Holy Ghost baptism. I'm talking about a baptism of everything that God was. We need more than something to make us run the eyes. Hallelujah. We need more than something to make us clap our hands. Praise God. But we need something that will help our dying society make it to heaven. Oh, Let's lift our hands and praise the Lord. Oh, glory, glory, glory. 
The presence of the Holy Ghost is ministering right now. Lift your hands again and just worship Him. Oh, glory. Hallelujah. Oh, God. If you do not believe that sin causes irresponsibility, listen to this report. You see, the devil is constantly pumping our system's full of drugs, alcohol, and etc. On the American, North American continent right now, there are over 50 million alcoholics. Over 50 million. There's no question about it. 1,200 new alcoholics come into our society in America every day. That means that there are 50 new ones per hour. Now, since we began service some two hours ago, 100 people in America have become alcoholics. What does alcohol do? You see people go to the local pubs, and they start drinking socially because that they are wrapped up in problems that they can't escape from. Now, let me tell you something about Christianity, brothers and sisters. Christianity was never designed by God to be an escape from reality. Christianity was designed by God and given to man to be not an escape from reality, but a power to overcome certain real situations and circumstances. It's not an escape from reality. I fix my flats just like my neighbor fixes his flats. I fix the holes in my roof just like the neighbor fixes the holes in his roof. But when God says you are peculiar people, the Bible connotation of peculiar simply means that we fight our warfare and live our life in a different fashion than what the world does. When somebody hits us on one cheek, we don't rear back and knock their nose off. We turn the other cheek. That is if we do it the Jesus way. Praise God. If when there's a roof in the, in the ceiling, we don't sit there and kick the stars out simply because the roof is leaking. Praise God. We secure a ladder and we go up there and we smear some tire on it or whatever it takes and we fix it back the way it ought to be fixed back. When our flats go uh, bad, we don't get out and kick our, our car until our toe turns blue. We don't do that. We simply unlock the uh, trunk and we take out the jack. And in Jesus' name, we put another tire on it. Praise God. You see, we're a peculiar people. Why? Because when the world is fighting madness with madness, we don't do it. When it fights grief with grief, we don't do it. When it fights carnality with carnality, we don't do it. God has given us power to overcome. And these things don't get the best of us. The Holy Ghost gives you power to do it. So we don't have to drink ourselves and drown ourselves and kill our brain cells with alcohol. That's the baptism of Christ. New York City annually. Over 1,800 murders. This happens to be 4.93 per day. The worst problem in the schools in our present system according to a poll taken in our national society of school teachers is this. Homosexuality is the number one problem in our schools. Praise God. In 1960, there was 1,500 youths arrested for drugs in California. In 1970, 10 years later, there were over 30,000 arrested. And the problem in 1980 was that this escalated to the point that some of the things that were considered crime before is no longer crime anymore. But friend, that's not a way to solve sin. In 1960, there were 55,000 heroin addicts in the USA. In 1970, 10 years later, it had grown from 55,000 to 560,000 heroin addicts. 1,200 new alcoholics per day, 50 per hour. And the number one selling book in America today is not the Bible anymore. 
It's the sex manual. It was the Bible. The Bible was replaced by one book only in my lifetime. And how sad. It was not replaced by some textbook. It was not replaced by some novel. It was replaced by a sex manual. But let me show you what's happened. In the last two years, pornography has gone up 400%. 600,000 babies were aborted last year. America has become the most irresponsible nation under the face of the sun. In 1980, 1.25 juveniles were processed in juvenile courts. In 1980, 1,200,000 teenagers were arrested, tried, sentenced, and jailed. You see, the only thing in the world that can give you balance in your life is God. When a child is born in the world, the worst thing you can do for him is to give him liberty without responsibility. Jesus put it this way in his word in Luke the 12th chapter verse 48, to whom much is given, much is required. Praise God. What was he saying? Do you know that do you know who in this building has the least amount of liberty? The little children who sit in their mother's arms. The little child is so beautiful and innocent when it's born, you take it home. But that child does not have a choice as to what he does or where he goes. He gets up when mama gets him up. Physically, she has to pick him up. He can't crawl out of the bed and walk in the kitchen and say, I'm going to the store today. Can't do that. He's totally dependent upon mom. Now, he doesn't have any, any liberty, but he doesn't have any responsibilities either. Because he has no liberty, he has no responsibilities. He doesn't take out the trash. He doesn't mow the lawn. He doesn't do any of these things. As he grows older and he becomes a little bit more susceptible to some of the things of life, you grant him a little bit more liberty. You take him out of the crib and put him in the floor. Now he's crawling around. As he gets older, he's walking he learns responsibility. A few things that you teach your children. You teach your children that they're not supposed to come over here and take the flowers out of the pot and sling them across the floor. See? He's, he's, he's moving around now. He's got, some, he's got some liberty. But he's responsible. He's responsible to his parents not to touch that. And if he's caught touching that, what happens? I'm inclined to believe that God put nerves right in the end of for discipline. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Amen. <laughs> you may say, oh, the modern psychologist. Let me tell you something. Anybody that goes to a psychiatrist needs their head examined. <clears throat> <clears throat> Praise God. We don't need that, friend. Amen. The Bible answers every question that you have, whether it's a social question whether there's a spiritual question or physical question, it's found and answered in God's holy word. For we are complete in him who is the head of all power and principality. Praise God. And so you got to teach that kid. Now if that child gets where he can run and he hasn't taught to be responsible, friend, he'll be more than tearing up your flowers. And that's the reason why you can go in some homes and everything's up high. And here the cow's four years of age. Listen, I told my wife, we don't take one thing off of a table. And when that child touches it, we will talk to him. If he doesn't respond to talking, he'll respond to force. Well, that's what the Bible says. Now, I'm not trying to be an old meanie tonight. That's what the Bible says. So you teach him. He's got liberty now. He's got to be responsible. Now he gets where he can go out in the yard and play. But there are, there's a perimeter around the yard and he can't go but just so far. And I believe if he's old enough to walk to the back side of the lot, he's old enough to take the trash out to the front side. And if, and if he gets too much liberty without responsibility, do you know exactly what happens to him? 
He becomes one of these four point so and so people per day that become alcoholics and such. He becomes irresponsible both to God and to his society. And after a while, he's one of the teenagers that's being processed in court. Now, what happens to this man when he has a lot of liberty and he has no responsibility, he's taken out of our society and he's locked up. Now, when he's locked up, all of his liberty is taken away from him. All of it. He paces the sale floor. He doesn't know what to do. He's bored to death. He, he just, he, he's got problems. He's got problems. Why are you here? Because you were irresponsible. Irresponsible. Now remember, he doesn't have any liberties, but at the same time, he doesn't have any responsibilities. He doesn't cook his own meals. He doesn't turn out his own lights. He doesn't go to bed when he wants to. And he doesn't get up when he wants to. There's somebody else that cooks his meals. There's somebody else that kicks him out in the morning. There's somebody else that turns out his lights. There's somebody else that wakes him up. And so it is in our world, friend. Do you know that hell is the prison that God has prepared for irresponsible people? People who love sin and the ways of sin. Now the Bible tells us in Matthew 25, 41 that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. But you see, because we love sin and we embrace sin and we want to be irresponsible and we want to be selfish and we want to do our own thing and go our own way and we will not separate ourselves from our sin, then both us and the sin must be cast in the lake of fire. For when the judgment day comes, the Bible says they shall come forth. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is unclean, let him be unclean still. Praise God, praise God, praise God. I just picked up today's paper and the Anchorage paper, I think this is whatever you call it, Anchorage Daily News, Anchorage Times, Saturday, January 16th, 1982. That's our day. Margaret calms down. Did you read that? Margaret Trudeau says the free lifestyle that made her notorious in her 20s was really an expression of despair. My escapades, my drug-taking, were no more than outbursts of despair at how profoundly I felt. Wretched attempts to kick back at what I could not handle, says the estranged wife of Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau in her new book, Consequences. At age 33, Mrs. Trudeau says, she now has abandoned that life that made her famous, a life she describes as self-centered, indulgent, interested only in myself and my problems. This is the consequences of your responsibility. Her family's broken up. She's a very sad lady today. Jesus said, Come unto me all of you that labor and are of heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. What was he saying? I thought a yoke was a place where the two heads are supposed to be put. You know what Jesus was saying? He said, now, I've got a yoke, and there's one head through it. He said, now, you put your head through the other side. You become my partner. You become my spouse. He said, I will be your head. I will be your husband man. He said, my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Job said, man is born a woman a few days and full of trouble. Praise God. But we yoke up with Christ. And we walk hand in hand with him. When Jesus said, the comforter will come, the comforter is taken from a Greek word that means he who stands alongside of. Do you know what he was really saying? He who stands alongside of. Come up here, Blair. 
Blair just received the Holy Ghost last night. Blair will go through many troubles and trials in life, whether he has God or not. But let's just pretend now that the closest person to him has just passed away and we're going to view the body. Our heads are lowered and we walk. And he's so heartbroken. I am the comforter. That's the connotation of the scripture. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. One who stands alongside. And so God says, Blair, I'm glad you're with me. I'm glad I can help you. You see, I'll comfort you, son, because I was tempted in all points like as you. I bore all your troubles and cares. I'll stand alongside you. Yes, hallelujah, hallelujah. Would you stand with me right now? And so when the load seems to get heavy and it seems to get too much, I used to plow a team of mules in a cotton patch in East Texas. And the worst thing you can have is have two animals that are not compatible. One will be sweating and the other one will be dry. Why? Because one gets out ahead of the other and does all the pulling. And that's what happens to us sometimes. We get out and we think, oh, I can't make it. We get the Lord by the arm and we drag him. We just need to slow down a little bit and let him kind of take the slack. And when we pull hand in hand with him, what a beautiful relationship. There are people here that need the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Danny said, this is my night. Come on out, Danny. Come down here, would you? I want three or four young men who are red hot and on fire for Jesus to come down here and pray with him.